The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Very well done, Data. Your performance skills really are improving. Method acting. I'm vaguely familiar with it, but why would you choose such an old-fashioned approach? Perhaps because the technique requires an actor to seek his own emotional awareness, to understand the character he plays. But surely that's an impossible task for you, Data. Sir, I have modified the method for my own uses. Since I have no emotional awareness to create a performance, I am attempting to use performance to create emotional awareness. I believe if I can learn to duplicate the fear of Ebenezer Scrooge, I will be one step closer to truly understanding humanity. Data, the moment that you decided to stop imitating other actors and create your own interpretation, you were already one step closer to understanding humanity. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 18th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Welcome to our show today, where the play is the thing. And interpretation of plays is the thing. We have a couple of guests with us in studio today who Robert will introduce to you momentarily. But first, don't forget, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, all of Just Right's past broadcasts. Well, Bob, I'm very pleased today to introduce our two guests who I know personally, especially working with them for the last couple of months on a play (laughs) of all things. Um, We have Paul Merrifield, who I've known for many years, um, off and on. He's the playwright. He's a retired uh, City of London employee, gardening. Yeah, Springbank Park. Springbank Park, yeah. Well, you did a great job. Yeah, I've worked with more squirrels than people. (laughs) <laughs> and, Good uh, experience to prepare yourself for no, they're, they're terrible creatures <laughs> Sitting next to Paul we have the illustrious John Palmer Now John Palmer is a um, university professor uh, University of Western Ontario is an economist He has many credentials um, Most of which we will not get into But I would like to ask you uh, for some of your credentials later on John Sure um, In the last half of the show We're going to be talking with John specifically about things economic and political, and uh, as, well as, as well with Paul. Uh, but the first half of the show, we want to talk about things related to the theater, because I'm directing a play, something I'd never thought I'd do before. But Paul approached me, knowing that um, I'm a little uh, a bit of background in politics, because he's written two plays dealing with political themes. And I agreed. And for the last two months or so, we've been sitting down with four actors and with Paul and myself and hashing out and rehearsing these two plays. And I tell you, it has been an experience I never thought I'd get to do, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. The process is amazing, and it's given me a whole new insight into the theater. Paul, why don't you uh, 
tell our, the listeners um, what your two plays are and uh, why you wrote them and the process of writing them. I'm an ideological chameleon. I, I can argue both sides. Uh, I used to be a socialist so bad that I still have my anarchist t-shirt. And uh, I just got so sick of being miserable that I tried being a conservative, but I'm not a Christian, so that didn't work out. And uh, I've, just heard, I've heard good people say such horrible things to each other purely on ideological grounds. So uh, I started writing this play a year and a half ago. And uh, I want to thank Jason Ripp. Um, he's a theater icon. He took a look at the basic bearable and script I had, and he says, this is a good play. So, now, the uh, play is what? What's it called? It's called Noam Chomsky versus Rush Limbaugh, and uh, it includes uh, Justin Trudeau versus uh, Kevin, O'Leary. Kevin O'Leary. Yeah, this is a little play with that appears just before the uh, the main event, which is yeah, Noam, the, Noam versus The premise Rush. is that... Uh, Gnome has a granddaughter, and... I wouldn't give away the, the punchline, if no, I were you. No, no. <laughs> let, well, let's just say, why don't you... Why let's, don't just, you let's just say that uh, Gnome, or Rush, questions his own sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I liked what you wrote for the the media kit um, in describing it. That's the best uh, description I've seen for it. And uh, on this stage at the Majestic Palace Theater, you will see a world where Anne Murray is secretly running Ottawa, Snoop Dogg is a policy analyst. Rush Limbaugh questions his sexuality, as we talked about. And Noam Chomsky is now an atheist. And Kevin O'Leary tries to hoodwink Justin Trudeau into quitting politics altogether. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a great romp. It was a lot of fun. Now, to be fair to all of the, the real-life characters who are being portrayed in these plays, this is a caricature sketch of them. Oh, yeah. People can identify with them. But um, some of the things that we talk about in the plays are certainly not true to life. No. Although the ideology, I think, is very uh, real. I think the ideology talks. Pa- Paul, I wanted to ask you, what was it about Robert that made you ask him to direct this this play? Was there something you you heard I or was, saw in him? I was going through the traditional roots of uh, getting local um, theater people to direct it, and uh, I think the politics turned Got them away. away. Ah. Even though I'm, uh, uh, when a conservative or a liberal reads the script, they're both happy. But uh, what I bring to theater is that I'm, I still think I'm new to it. I, I still think I'm in the seat mm-hmm. watching a play. And that's why I thought, Robert, um, he's never done it before. So I'm going to bring him in with new eyes. And boy, he brought in new eyes. He's a, He's been very innovative and uh and and what was your original motivation for for writing this in the first place and why pick of all people Rush Limbaugh and Noam Chomsky were they well they're both the icons of mm-hmm. western political rhetoric and uh, i i thought of a way where both ideologies could compromise on something but still maintain their ideology it's just that they have to work together somehow so in the play you'll see that i have come up with a with a solution yeah. So, so you've picked them sort of to be the polarized symbolism of two points of view. Oh, they certainly are. Excellent. And they don't want to meet each other. Okay. <laughs> no, that comes across in the play. But Paul is no stranger really to play writing or acting or the whole theater business because um, you've been at it for a number of years now, especially in your retirement. And uh, I remember seeing you at the McManus playing Martini in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And if anybody remembers the movie, it was played by Danny DeVito, that character. And I really enjoyed that play. It was so well done. I've played that character twice now. The first time was in a traveling production. 
And uh, the only reason I got the part is because I had a truck. <laughs> you were the one with the truck. <laughs> yeah, we, we had to transport the, the set. So. And you've also won an award, Funniest Show, in 2008. Co-wrote um, a particular play that uh, for the London Fringe, and you uh, won that award. Is that right? Yes. Great. No Brickendons yet? <laughs> Nominated, that's all. <laughs> Nominated, okay. But again, no stranger to the whole process. Now, John, let's turn to John. You're an economics re- professor, retired. Yes. And um, But you've been in uh, the acting business for over 20 years, I think. Uh, off and on. I, I tell people that I actually have been acting all my life because when I became a professor at Western, I was the one who started the, the large lecture sessions. We called them the nightclub act because I would wear a cordless mic and sort of walk around the classroom, put on a bit of a show. That I think that really was part of the desire to become an actor. I didn't do any acting in London when I lived in London for 25 years. I moved up to Clinton and uh, joined the Clinton Community Players, started acting there, started doing some acting in Toronto, had an agent for a little while. And then when we moved back to, Lon- to London, I've done quite a bit of acting since, since we moved back here. If anybody wants to see John, they can go to the Finger 11 uh, video that you actually have about three seconds in as the conductor. Yes. So go to a Finger 11. What was the name of the Finger 11 song? One Thing. One Thing. Yeah, go to YouTube, Finger 11, One Thing, look for the conductor. That's actually John Palmer. (laughs) (laughs) And let me just say that one of the reasons I got that role in that video, I had to audition for it, but Mm -hmm. one of the reasons I got that role was because at that time I was the conductor of the Blythe Festival Orchestra in addition to many other things that I do. Now, let's turn to the Fringe Festival in London. Now, Fringe is well, all across I, the country. I, I did have a question for oh. John. In terms of, you know, I talked to Paul about his motivation. What is your motivation from an actor's point of view? I've always wondered this about actors generally. And it is that an actor is not coming into the scene with original material. He's not expressing his point of view per se. So... Is that a factor in how you approach it? Do you have to like what you're doing? Do you have to like the character? Would there be things you wouldn't do? Or or do you feel like you're doing someone else's work? Or do you feel like you're putting your own stamp on it in terms of your own interpretation? Those are good questions. I try to become that character. It's what Brian Kaplan calls the ideological Turing test. Can you sort of represent what this other person is? And I tried that. And that would be tough. So I brought a lot of, I, I did a lot of watching of Noam Chomsky videos, uh, read some Noam Chomsky. Of course, I was familiar with him anyway and probably disagree with almost everything he writes and says. And yet I know I would lose any debate with that man. He is so smart and so knowledgeable. <laughs> so, I, I, so I have this immense respect for his knowledge and his ability even though I disagree with all of his positions, to try to take that into the role and, and be Noam Chomsky required a lot of work because, first of all, I disagreed with his politics, but secondly, I disagreed with the way Paul wrote him and the way Paul wanted him portrayed. And, and, and that, so already that, I see problems on, uh, on, on, the, on the stage front. If oh, I, oh, no. I helped solve those problems. Oh, we, 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 yeah. we worked more on grammar than anything else. Yeah, we, we worked them out in word choice. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're we worked, you're we worked things out quite not. well. The other difficulty I'm having is that Chomsky is a very laid-back, calm, quiet man. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that in the Palace Theater because that's huge it's like a barn yeah and and that that's not good theater unfortunately so paul has tried to introduce a lot of inflections and robert has also encouraged 
a lot of inflections in his directing so that we're, we're getting some sort of a mixture of Noam Chomsky, Paul Merrifield, and John Palmer and Robert Vaughn, all of us combined in this character. Now, like Paul, I was also a bloody socialist when I was young. I went to theological seminary because I wanted to change the world after having studied economics. I wanted to change the world. I went to the theological seminary that was at the forefront of the civil rights movement in 1965. Jesse Jackson was a year ahead of me in seminary. Our seminary was the base for Martin Luther King in Chicago uh, for his civil rights marches. And then I looked around and looked and I thought, you know, uh, if the wrong people get in charge and get in power, I don't think I like what's going to happen. And so I became more and more decentralist as a, as a person. My very favorite professor was a man who won the Nobel Prize in economics, a man named Robert Fogel, an economic historian. I was talking with him one time. He's, I said, what, 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 what did you do before you uh, went into economics? He said, I was a student activist. I said, what? <laughs> he said, I was, a, I was the head of the Communist Party in, in New York City. And I said, well, what changed your mind? He said, it didn't work. that's sort of what happened to me I'd sort of gone through that transition more gradually than Fogel had but it was, you know, it didn't work and uh, the predictions were wrong they never came true and uh, I became increasingly more interested uh, in libertarian views Uh, another thing that helped me a great deal were the debates between Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson in Newsweek magazine in the, around 1965 to 1967. They were fantastic. Milton Friedman won every one of those, as far as I could tell. Well, I recall being greatly influenced by Milton Friedman in his Free to Choose series back in the, was that the 70s or 80s? Uh, late 70s. Late and se- at the same time, though, like that, uh, I mean, Free to Choose was, was an update, basically, of capitalism and freedom, which right. I read that same right. summer that I made some of the tra- transitions. And also at that summer, during that summer, decided I did not belong at theological seminary, but would rather go on, go back into economics. We're going to take a little break now. What do you got lined up for some clips here, Bob? Noam Chomsky and a clip from the... From the play itself. And we'll be back right after this. Okay. I mean, you called the Republican Party the most dangerous organization on earth. In human history. There has never... It's an outrageous statement. And I, when I said it, I said, look, this is a very outrageous statement. But is it true? Uh, has there... But you're, you're, you're rating them worse than the... Kim Jong-un of North Korea or ISIS who are very... Is, is ISIS dedicated to trying to destroy the prospects for organized human existence? Right. Is that bad, the Republican well, what Party? What does it mean to say not only we're not doing anything about climate change, but we're trying to accelerate the race uh, to the press? And, and you don't entertain the possibility that they may be genuine in their belief that this is doesn't matter whether they genuinely believe it or not. The people who genuinely believe that Christ is coming in their lifetimes do genuinely believe it. But if, that, if the consequence of that is, let's use more fossil fuels, let's refuse to subsidize uh, co- developing countries, uh, let's eliminate regulations that uh, uh, reduce uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions, if that's the consequence, that's extremely dangerous. Hi, my name is Trevor, and I'll be your server for the next 20 minutes. 
Would you like to look at a wine list or something while you wait? Mr. Limbaugh, is it? What? No, it's not Limbaugh. It's Limbaz and Rush Limbaugh. That's okay, kid. You can just call me Rush. R- Russ? No, not Russ. <laughs> it's Rush, as in hurry up. Say, Trevor, you know what a liberal's favorite wine is? What? You can't say that! You can't say that! That's a liberal's favorite wine, get it? <laughs> Come oh. on, Professor, lighten up! That's it, I'm leaving. I cannot bear another minute of this attempt at outrageous forced congeniality. So that was from the play Noam Chomsky versus Rush Limbaugh, or rather the, the rehearsal <laughs> section. Uh, Robert, I asked uh, our two guests already, but you're, you're almost in a guest situation today on today's <laughs> show as a director. And I was wondering, what is your motivation for having said yes to Paul's invitation to direct this? And, and are you putting your interpretation in? Do you feel like you're adding to the whole matrix of what is being said in this play? Well, that's interesting because um, I did Toastmasters many years ago, about 15 years ago. And there was one fellow at Toastmasters who particularly struck me when um, he, he was a bon vivant. I mean, he, he was very uh, upbeat about life and taking opportunities when they present themselves. And he said, I always, when somebody asks me if you want to do this, I always say yes. Because I can always back out later with an excuse or whatever, <laughs> or say no later, right? But grab the opportunity when it's presented, because who knows, you may like it. That's how this show started, in fact. I yes. said yes when I wasn't prepared to even think about it. Yeah. You know? Well, Paul asked me, um, actually, I was. it was so off the wall, so out of my envelope, that I had to read the scripts first, and I read the scripts because I wouldn't want to say yes to scripts that I would object to. I wouldn't, you know, given the the current state of theater these days in the, in this postmodernist world, I wouldn't <laughs> want to direct some um, uh, something that I didn't agree with. But I knew Paul, and I knew that um, we were ideologically sort of on the same page, so I didn't have too much of a. Um, I didn't think that it would be too out of the um, ordinary for me to, to do it. But I got the scripts. I read them, and I'm going, what did I say to you? I said, count me in. Yeah. You know, yeah count me now, in that's interesting. You said you wouldn't do one that you didn't ideologically agree with. Would you gentlemen do do something that you didn't ideologically agree with, being more in the playwright and actor position on that? Or is that just something you wouldn't want to do because it wouldn't be motivating? <laughs> Just looking at myself saying, no, no <laughs> I would okay. never do that. I, I, I do them all the time. I mean, most theaters left wing. Um, I, I had the, the lead role in Equus, playing Dr. Dysart, the psychiatrist. Tough role, I'm sure. It was a tough role. And uh, I was working with a lot of people who were very left wing. And uh, even though that role wasn't ex- explicitly left wing, it was, it was different from me. But that's what acting is about. You take on different roles. And let's face it, how many people do you know in the theater who are, who are libertarian? Not very many. Most people in theater are heavily involved in getting government grants, thinking the government knows best, thinking they know best and ought to be able to tell other people what to do, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that I disagree with. Um, so I have a wide range of Facebook friends, let's say. <laughs> I think we all do. Um, let's talk about um, the state of, of plays these days, because I was going through the the list of the plays that the Fringe is holding this year, starting May 30th, and I think, Paul, that these two plays, Crazy Nine and, it's actually called Pig Face, <laughs> this play of Noam Chomsky versus Rush Limbaugh, um, these two plays are the only ones that 
that talk about politics in a direct sense. Is that right? Yeah, as far as I can see in the program. But most of these plays are written by people that have a true passion about something. And that's the great thing about the fringe, is that uh, if you have a play sitting in a in a drawer somewhere that you've never done anything with, if you can get 15 people a night to see your play, you break even. <laughs> and a lot of these plays are, you know, truly um, personal expressions of the passion that they've built up over over the years. And a, a lot of these uh, local playwrights um, use the fringe to, you know, s- start something. That's, and that's the thing about the fringe, isn't it? It is somewhat amateur, somewhat professional, sort of in between, because they're paid positions and you are charging at the door and people do make money at it. But it's also for up-and-coming uh, talent as well. That the, the actors, and I should mention them right now, that are taking part in these two plays of Paul's. Uh, of course, we have John Palmer, but um, we have uh, John Fote, uh, F-O-C-H-T, young fella from Thunder Bay, playing four parts during this production. Yeah. Uh, some parts aren't mentioned in the playbill. Like I actually the, met him at Yuck Yucks. We were both doing Yuck Yucks. Yeah, stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah young couple. I think he's 22 or something like that. 24. 24, is he? Yeah. But um, very talented. He's going to be playing Justin Trudeau, and he plays the waiter in the Chomsky versus Rush one. And then we have um, Brent Haw. And Brent has just cut his teeth basically playing um, roles at his church. But I tell you, I am so impressed with Brent Haw that it's like, Wow, where's the Hollywood, where, where's the New York um, agents should be sitting in on these plays because this guy can nail it. This guy really works hard at what he's doing and uh, it shows. And of course we have Andy Pettifer who's no stranger to the London uh, theater, uh, the stages, because he's been um, doing uh, theater for quite a while. Yeah, his last play was Strangers on a Plane, <laughs> a train. Strangers on a Train. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's, well, he's a long-term a great actor in London. He could be on uh, TV or movies any day. Now, he plays Kevin O'Leary in the Crazy Nine play. And I tell you, it's scary. Uh, some of the promo pictures we took of Kevin, um, he looks just like Kevin O'Leary. <laughs> <laughs> it, it leads one to believe that there's a lot of hidden talent out there from what you folks are saying. And that would make the whole theater industry extremely competitive if you're going to be as successful as you know some of the big actors that's got to be a a a low percentage of huge success and yet there's all this talent out there is there enough of an audience for all of this to sustain it you said it only took 15 people to to in a given setting in a certain situation economically is is you see limitations on that why we wouldn't have more theater of this sort probably the the way downtown is situated, and it's hard to get people to go downtown. Mm-hmm. Now that they've destroyed it. Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> Sorry, when, just when my we, little pet beef. When we didn't get the McManus, <laughs> we thought, oh, well, we're done. And, but then the palace just turned into the best thing ever because there's so much more we can do there. And yeah, the palace is nice. It's a, it's a great theater. So your, your impressions about theater these days? When I left London to move up to Clinton about 20 years ago, there might have been one or two amateur theater companies in London. Now there seem to be about 100. There's theater going on everywhere. Um, a lot of people who are starting out hoping to get a start, hoping to try try this, try that, 
a lot of young people who've gone through the Fanshawe Theater program who don't have a hope in hell of making it as professional actors or professional theater workers of one sort or another. But on that 0.01% chance are trying, and they're taking the shot at it. And so they're, they're starting all of these theater companies. It's wonderful. There's so much theater going on. I can't see it all. I would love to be able to go to more theater. It's a lot of fun. But there, there's so many more venues available now, too. I mean, the Palace Theater, and now there's the Precunier Hall, which is right next door to it, part of the, the London Community Players. They have another little theater where they do some rehearsals called The Bank. The Arts Project, McManus Theater, Franchise, at least one theater, maybe another theater, Spreet Family Theater, lots of theater uh, venues available for people. And when they're not being used, that means they're available for others to rent and put on a show. The Arts Project is often booked up well, six months to nine months in advance, but there are lots of opportunities for people to put on these shows. And the Fringe Festival is a great way for people to get into it. Now, the Fringe brings in a lot of people from out of town as well. It's not just yeah, local yeah, town. Yeah, good point. They bring in a lot of... and Award-winning shows coming to the That's Fringe. Award-winning, you're right, Paul. People who've won awards elsewhere, and they do the Fringe circuit, making a meager living, sleeping on people's couches in various towns where they're performing. But uh, it also does provide this opportunity. One of the things that I've seen is that people sometimes start with a one-act play in the one-act festival where the, there's a, a strict time limit of 30, 30 minutes. Then they flesh out the play a bit more. It becomes uh, an hour-long play, and they enter it in the fringe. And then they maybe flesh it out a bit more, and it becomes an hour-and-a-half play, sort of a full-length production. It's a great stepping stone. And we have a lot of opportunities. Like even the London One Act Festival, that didn't exist when I was here before. A lot of opportunities for playwrights, directors, people who want to work backstage. I have a friend who's just jumped at the opportunity to do lights and sound because that's something he you know, likes. Working backstage is a lot of fun. I urge anyone to do that because um, it's a real exercise in teamwork when you're in a play because even if you're doing the smallest thing backstage, it's vitally important to everybody. And everyone does their job, and uh, that's the that's the thing that impressed me about that this production is a team effort. So much, if one person falls down, you know, it's like um, pulling a a string on your sweater; it just comes <laughs> apart. <laughs> because it's it everybody has to be professional and and focused and give it their all. And when I see a play and I notice that it comes off just just so. Um, you know that everybody has contributed yeah, I, so much I work backstage it. for Rocky Horror every year at the McManus, and uh, that's the most fun ever. <laughs> I uh, imagine. And uh, it's a great play. Oh, yeah. John Pacheco, Pacheco Theater. Uh, John, uh, Paul, uh, John, Paul, George, Ringo here. Yeah. Bob, <laughs> Bob, you asked me whether or not you, I saw any influence in the play itself uh, in my role as director. And yeah. that's the one thing I'm, I'm so intrigued about is... Um, how the portrayal of a particular character is not simply the actor's portrayal or the playwright's portrayal. It's a combination of all three of us sitting at this table to bring out a Noam Chomsky that we can all like. I know that as yeah. a director, apparently it's, it's my show. Like you, you pointed out that the end of my play, Pig Face, just kind of fell off a cliff. And I thought about it for a week and I came up with a, a really funny ending. Yeah. And, uh, and John said... Uh, he doesn't sound like a, oh, no, you said, what is a political crime? I didn't define it. So I made a gag out of it. Yeah. So every, And then my wife pointed out that uh, Noam is a Jew, so you can't make him an atheist. So I made him an atheist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and just 
working with the actors when they present a character in a certain way. And I have a vision of your play. You have a vision of your play. That's We're almost on the same page with it. Yeah, and um, we're trying to get that into the actors because they have a vision of the play as they read it. But um, you keep telling me, I mean, director, you're the director. You, it's your word. You, you're the one who decides. And um, I think it's much more of a collaborative thing. But to see an actor say a word in one way, and then I suggest, well, what if you do it this way? And then they do it that way, and everybody goes, oh, yes, that's it. Or I say something, and you go, no, that's no, no I, good. No, I'll think to myself, <laughs> I, I got to tell uh, Robert that. But then I say, no, he'll say it eventually. <laughs> and he does. Here you go. Anyway, it's such a it's a fun w- piece of work to to do this whole thing, and, and I, I would recommend anybody to get in involved in their local community theater because it is just that it's fun, especially backstage because there's so many opportunities now. Oh, for sure, especially technically minded people, especially the young people, carpenters, computers, lighting, audio, all of that stuff. The other night, this comedian stole one of my jokes, and I was really upset about it. So I thought to get back at him. I would steal one of his jokes and tell it to you guys tonight, if you don't mind. Okay, um, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Jackson's bicycle. At this point, he kind of took out a prop that I don't really have. It was really funny. Um. What, if anything, do we have in common? Reason. Reason? Yes. Reason is humanity's strongest suit. But it's the last thing you lefties even think of using. It's as if everything that's unfortunate in life is somehow unfair. It's as if logic itself is somehow cruel. But logic, just like real life, has real consequences, Professor. Real consequences. It's a requirement, isn't it? All you conservatives must be slaves to a god. Thus, leaving conservatism as a religion. Not as a political movement, not as a quest for liberty. Because reason, your word, says that religious beliefs are merely the vestigial tale of human cognitive evolution. So, can we continue to evolve as a species, sir? So much for moving forward. Moving forward. (laughs) Moving forward is liberalism's religion of moving forward in any direction with Blind faith that somewhere out there is that great progressive utopia of peace, love, and understanding. Riding along in my automobile with no particular place to go. Good grief. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. I guess we want to get from the play being the thing to the thing that the plays are about. And I know there's some political issues that concern both of you, I guess, to some degree. 
John, I noticed that you were bothered, just like I was, about this thing about, what was it now, corporations having uh, a net value the same as the GDP of a country or something like that. What's your take on a, on a silly statement like that? Well, I used to run a program to try to teach economics to journalists. The program to ran, journalists? Yes. Oh, really? We ran that program during the summer for, well, late spring for about 10 years with some corporate sponsorship. I'm not sure we had any effect, and it really bothers me that we didn't. When I look back at some of my former students, and I realize that they're saying stuff I, I shrink back in horror, I think, I feel like a total failure. That's the reason I was such a good actor in, as, in the role of Dysart, because he, was, he felt like a total failure, too. It was easy to identify with that role. But what, one of the things that just really fries my crisps is that journalists use jargon, and they don't know what they're saying. Well, the thing that I, that I complained about recently on Facebook was a, a local journalist who said that the net worth of Apple Corporation was greater than the GDP of enlisted four or five other con countries combined. That story was out all over the place. Yeah, uh, it, it, it just it's nonsense to compare net worth, which is a, without a time flow, it's a moment in time, you take a picture at a moment in time, with a flow, which is what the GDP is, it's income per time. Mm -hmm. And that kind of nonsense, I wish we could get journalists to get that straight. And the thing is, we, we would teach these journalists that sort of thing. They would remember it for a week or two, and they would go back. And then they would get promoted to being editors or producers, and they never write those stories again. And then we get more new people coming in. For a while, in fact, at Western, economics, introductory economics, was a required course in the journalism program. Unfortunately, after they had some problems uh, whether or not the journalism program was going to survive, Peter Deborah, who was the dean at the time, the late Peter Deborah, a good friend of mine, uh, but he did cut out the economics course because they had other issues that they had to deal with, and he didn't want to pay my salary to teach that course, which was unfortunate. I think journalists really do need to learn more about very basic economics. And it's if I were doing those courses again now... they these issues all the time, and you'd think yeah. they would be more um, in, attuned to what they're talking about. You but they know the truth, Robert. They know accuracy? the truth. They don't have to learn anything. They know the truth. <laughs> I mean, I don't, well, you, you spend a lot of time talking with journalists. You know what they're like. They study something for 10 or 15 minutes, maybe <laughs> even a half day, and they are experts. And relative to their listening public, they are experts, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but again, if they had that background way behind them, then that 15 minutes of expertise would be properly applied. You said you were very disappointed by your experience in trying to teach them economics. What was the disappointment based on, that they simply were incapable of picking it up or understanding it, or just that they understood it but rejected it? I think it was a combination of those things. Some people didn't pick it up. Others picked it up but didn't want to believe it. They had such tight, what we would call Bayesian priors. They had mm -hmm. such tight beliefs that they couldn't adjust. And there were others who learned it for the course but couldn't apply it to anything else. I, I got to tell you, I, I, if I were to doing those programs again, I would do them very, very differently. Much more basic, much more fundamental. I would really, really try to emphasize the concept of opportunity costs, scarcity. That there's, you know, that if you if you use scarce resources one way, they're not available for something else. It's not a free ride. And well, the simple law of supply and demand is not even understood by most oh, people. Oh, most of them it isn't. That's Could it be that a, you're trying to deal with people who's, from our experience, ideology is um, not capitalistic? It's a combination of that. You're absolutely right. 
We had one journalist from CBC who took me aside one time and said to me, most people don't know this, but I'm a left-wing journalist. <laughs> I started laughing. I said, everybody in this program who's teaching in this program knows you are. You're the leftist, farthest left. That we, we, you're one of the people we wanted to have come here to learn some of this stuff. It's like explaining water to a fish. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> exactly. So the ideology, uh, yeah, that's part a barrier. Of that's part of it. But another part of it is, I think I have been very insular in my own mind, not realizing how many people there are out there who can actually write and think but are enumerate. And they don't know how to, to think in a sort of a logical, mathematical pattern. And that's really something that's required, I think, when you're doing an analysis critical of policy, thinking. the critical thinking stuff. I wrote a long blog piece recently about the lack of critical thinking and how we are not taught critical thinking. It's something we, the only way I learned critical thinking was being exposed to people who have different views than mine. I was never taught it. You don't, it's not something you can teach. You just have to experience it. And you has to, it has, it has to grow. And you know, these you folks know how I learned it? By writing. Yes. And the first time I ever wrote anything on a piece of paper, I looked at it and I said, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I, really I know did. the exact same experience I, I, I really you're talking did. about. It's yes. absolutely true. And that was... And you know something? We, Bob and I just um, a couple of days ago uh, went and saw Jordan Peterson speak at the Society for Academic Freedom and Scholarship, and you're a lifetime member of that, yes. John, Yes. Uh, of that organization. And we saw him speak at a private event at Western. I filmed it, by the way, and everybody, it'll, it'll be available on our YouTube channel later. However, my point is that Peterson, during this talk, said that thinking is different from speaking, is different from writing, is different from acting. You think a thought, you say a thought, you write a thought, and you act out a thought, but they can be all completely different even though they're the same, what you might think is the same thought. And, you know, there was some, you'd have to hear the lecture to understand it, but he's absolutely correct. And Bob impressed me, impressed me with that early on in our history when I sat down to write something political for, for the very first time, and I'm going, I'm an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask a liberal what ideology is, you know what they always say? It's conservatism. They don't even <laughs> recognize it. Conservatives know what ideology is because they make fun of liberals all the time. And if you ask so they know their place. they'll say the reverse. <laughs> and, and trying to explain the, the liberal slant on CBC is like explaining water to a fish. They just don't see it. And I think part of it, or no, 100% of it, is uh, epistemology. It is the understanding of concept, the definitions of words, the history of words, the etymology of words. They don't get it. And it takes more time to, and effort to understand. I'm not a conservative, I, by the way. I think there's more to it than that, Robert. I really do. I, 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 I think there is a, a mindset that says, I know what's good for you. <laughs> and that mindset, yeah, that sure. mindset is one that, le that led me to the theological seminary because I wanted to tell the world what was right for everybody. That mindset is the one that leads many people to want to have big government because they think that, you know, they want big government as long as they are the ones that tell big government what to tell sure. other people to do. They don't want to be told what to do themselves. And if you know, and the problem with big government then is just it's the wrong people who are doing the controlling. But that, I think, is a mindset that's a very difficult one to overcome. People just don't believe what Friedrich Hayek said about the, 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 the fatal conceit and the, the importance that, that the role of the economist is to point out that we can't plan, that we can't 
make predictions very carefully because there's that in fact markets are the best predictors there are the market markets are the best ways to allocate scarce resources that's efficiently a, that's a von mises type of view yes point, it is isn't it? very that similar you cannot predict it the uh, the age-old um, joke about economists is that they've successfully predicted 13 of the last nine uh, recessions <laughs> there's your case in point oh, i'm one i'm one of them too you think the motivation, you're talking about, you know, I know what's good for you. Is it perhaps, is it all, that sounds like a, a, almost an evil motivation. Is there mo- maybe part of the motivation is to actually think in terms of wanting to be helpful? To oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that's, why, that's why we call it yeah. the nanny state. Right. Right? So, because people so, are trying to, they, they, think they're, they think they're doing what's, oh, yes, we might make life uncomfortable for you for a little while, but you'll think us, you'll thank us in the long run. It's very parental. It's, like, it's yeah, very parental. I was going to say, it's like a, like a parent talking Is it our to a herd child. mentality, gene right. in our DNA that... Well, I think we all want to, I don't think we're out in the intrinsic human condition to to do each other in. We want to all do well together, I would think, the average healthy thinking person. But how he goes about it. I think that's overly optimistic, Robert. Am I being? I I agree. I think it's over optimistic. I think that we've been saying on the show. I'm happy to, I'm, I'm happy to recognize that there are many people in the world who would be very happy to do you in, in order to advantage themselves. Oh, I'm I'm not, I'm not Uh, blind to that factor, uh, but I wouldn't call them a majority or. Oh, I would. No, 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 no. no, I would. Robert (laughs) described it very well to me once when he said that good people have such evil in their hearts and uh, history showed that how good people would do such horrible things. I think that there's a very large percentage, I wouldn't say majority necessarily, but we can quibble about the percentages until the cows come home. But there certainly is a strain going through society of, of people who dislike life. And in, 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 in their own dislike of their own life and life in general, they actually try to systematically destroy this world and take glee in other people's misery. They're out there, and you know something? They're in power. Climate change. Exactly. We're all going to die, and I'm going to drag you down with me. Those kinds of people who are, 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 are um, dismissing reality, dismissing facts, dismissing um, the harm that they're actually deliberately doing to people are actually doing it because it fits their own hatred for life, for life's sake. I th- that you, what you've said might capture a portion of what's going on and part of the motivation, but I think there's more to it than that. I think that people also uh, want to control other people. They know what's good for them. And, and uh, I see that. I mean, listen. A, a defensive I'm a, I'm a, reaction? I'm, because... a, I'm a parent. I'm also a university professor. In my role as a, uni- in my, in my role as a former university professor, I always uh, was in control. Okay, I knew what was good for those students. I knew what they had to do, and then I look at what you know that model, and I see yeah they've gone through this model, they've been successful, and they know what's good for society. They know we need bus rapid transit in London, Ontario. They also know that they know what's best. That's the thing that bothers me. They know what's best, and you couple Power that is- that knowledge of I know what's best for you and for everybody else with some political power, so that they become shall we say, bullies, using, exercising their political power, demagogues, that scares the heck out of me. You know, power is attractive for its own sake, and I think that it stems from our own parenting, uh, parenting capabilities. I mean, as, as animals, we do have to have this innate need and desire to control our children. The thing is that once the children grow up, that, that desire and need is still there. 
and we're turning it now to other adults, and that's distasteful to me completely. And unfortunately, we live in a Judeo-Christian ethic of doing good to other people, whether they want it done or not, and damn who it hurts trying to do it. That's why Freedom Party says that we should return religion back to the people where it came from and keep it out of courts, schools, and government. Yeah, keep religion out That's of That's what attracted me to the sure. Freedom Party. Yeah. The problem with thinking is that you're a very narrow channel, right? I mean, there's a lot of world and there isn't very much of you. And that means that there's a lot more that you filter out than there is that you take in. And you, your filtering is very, very intensive. It's dependent to some degree on your embodiment. It's dependent to some degree, far more than people generally realize, on your motivations and your, and your temperament. And then it's further narrowed by your position in society and by the people that you have around you and by your particular domain of expertise or lack thereof. And then there are sets of darker motivations as well that blind you to certain things that you should be able to see but either don't or won't. And so the problem with thinking is that A, you're a narrow channel, B, you're not very good at it, and C, you're incredibly biased and there isn't much you can do about that except listen and talk to other people. They're not the only source of correction, but they're a pretty intense source of correction. And I mean, we're blasting corrective information at each other all the time, right? Even in a situation like this, which you could think of as a monologue, but isn't. It's a dialogue. The reason I'm watching all of you is to see, are you paying attention? And if not, I better adjust what I'm saying. Do your facial expressions indicate that you're understanding what I'm saying and following it, maybe you're nodding, your eyes are open, you know, in some specific way, you're, you're actually facing me, your eyes are on me, I can read your facial expressions, which is always why I'm looking at individuals in the audience, and I'm constantly calibrating what I'm saying, if it's a dynamic conversation, to ensure that the information flow is maximized. And the reason I look at your eyes is because I can tell where they're pointing, and the reason I look at your face is because you're broadcasting motivational and emotional information non-stop at me while I'm speaking. Let's get back to the play, guys, and talk about the fact that you're introducing in this particular play, Paul, um, a gimmick, if I, if I could be allowed to say that, that you're going to allow the audience members to live stream the play, to record the play and put it up on their YouTube channel. While they're channels. sitting in their seats, While they're sipping sitting a glass seats. of wine. Oh yes, there's a wine bar, don't forget yeah. that. Now, of course, you're going to be putting, anybody who wants to stream it will sit in the side aisles. Yes, one of our streets. actors is going to be uh, directing people, if they don't want to stream, to go to the middle seats, right. and the streamers are going to be off to the sides. And I have to give Kathy Navakis credit here, because... I thought for sure she was going to say, get the hell out of my office when I suggested this. She's the fringe organizer. Yes, she's great. And uh, she thanked me for having being a, showing a little innovation in fringe, which which is what fringe is supposed to be about. Sure. So this could be a world first. I've, I've started the process of putting it through Guinness World Book of Records, and uh, it wasn't in their database. So they, they accepted the next step, which is to have them look it up. And the fact know. that it's being streamed. Yeah. yeah. By the audience members. Yeah, because usually people are so protective over their productions. Yeah, and this actor that's going to seat people will remind people to turn their brightness down on their phone and stuff like that. All that stuff. Yeah, it shouldn't be too distracting. But what I hope to do with the whole thing is film it myself in a closed set so that we can immortalize these uh, these great actors and uh, a great play. 
Yeah. Anyway, if anybody wants more information about the play, uh, one is called Crazy Nine. It's only a short play. And then the other one is um, about a half hour. It's called Noam Chomsky versus Rush Limbaugh. The whole show is called Noam Chomsky versus Rush Limbaugh. Oh, I see. Yes. With Crazy Nine being one element and Pigface being the other. You can go to our Facebook.com slash Noam versus Rush. That's N-O-A-M-V-S-R-U-S-H. And the same address for Twitter.com. Noam V-S. R-U-S-H. And the times of the play, it started, the times are coming up on us really quick, John. All in June, yeah. (laughs) June 1st, 9.45 p.m., all at the Palace on Dundas Street. June 3rd at 9 p.m., June 5th at 5 p.m., June 7th at 8.30 p.m., and June 9th at 5 p.m., and finally June 10th at 8.30 p.m. The best thing about this play is, for the people that are going to see it, don't worry about tickets. There's 300-plus seats. So getting a ticket is certain and simple. Fourteen bucks at the door. Don't necess- no, not necessarily reserved. Lots of parking, wine. What more do you want? <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to some politics because uh, we're all politicians here. You know how you know you're a liberal? How? When you're against more than you're for. <laughs> that is so true. And uh, it really is. <laughs> I just find it hilarious that. Conservative- or when you don't even know what you are for. Yeah, <laughs> I find it hilarious that conservatives promise you personal liberty all the time as long as you surrender it to their Jesus. Well, having been in the conservative party, uh, at least uh, in a provincial way, and with the Canadian Alliance federally having run for them, I, I, there is a, a huge religious component to that yeah, side I, of the yeah, They can get nasty when you say, I'm pro-choice. Oh, um, I, I, when I ran for the Canadian Alliance, the question came up, um, are you pro-choice or, 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 you know, or for abortion? I said, I'm... I'm pro-life, which means that I'm pro-choice, <laughs> you know, because choice is part of living. Yeah, and, and I say to anyone... You take away my I, choice, you've taken away my life. I say to anyone who's pro-life, if sanctity of life is so important to you, why are you sitting here? It's like Ayn Rand, when she someone asked her, um, what would you do about the poor and the disabled and stuff? And she, her answer was, who's stopping you? Yeah. <laughs> so... Right. If you think that the sanctity of life is so important, then devote your life to it. Just don't be telling other people what they should be doing. Well, I tell you, the reaction I got from the uh, the right, the conservative right, was not very uh, pleasant. Um, it was something that, uh, yeah, it, the the right, in my estimation, is very, very religious-based in this country, at least, and, and same in the States. Um, and the left... Is the exact it's the exact opposite. It's throw all of the good things that we find in religion, order and and consistency and tradition and some estimate in some form of morality. Even though in my estimation, uh, Christianity is the wrong morality. Altruism is wrong in my in my book. Um, rational self interest is my morality. The left, at least the extreme left, want to throw all that out. Anything goes, anarchy, you know, or, or totalitarianism, and you just don't seem to find much of a middle ground. They say that, but they want us all to think, act, talk, and walk the same. That, that's a, a liberal's dream. So why don't they love the word assimilation? Why don't they realize that Muslims are also pro-life, anti-gay, anti-evolution, anti-Western uh, uh, female can I, can I ask something, Robert? You said something just a minute ago. Uh, you you find altruism to be immoral? Oh, definitely. So uh, that means I should not donate to the Freedom Party. 
<laughs> That's not that is altruism. not altruism. That is not altruism. You are doing it out of very selfish reasons. This is a very selfish reason. I want uh, the freedom. Because you want to save to, your freedom. Yes. Oh, I when see. Robert means altruism, he means it like sacrifice. Ayn Rand did, as self-sacrifice, where you give up a higher value for a lower value. That's a different thing. So, and, and giving so to something, means, increasing both values. So, right? the kind of altruism that we sometimes see with people walking down the street. There's a beggar, and you give them a granola bar. Is that altru- the kind of altruism you would have? Actually, you know, and let's, turn, let's go back to Rand. Let's go back to Rand because she, she nailed this as far as ethics go, morality. She said, if you give to charity, the fact that you give to charity says something about your love of your own life. You cannot love other people until you love yourself. And so if somebody who's miserable with themselves gives to charity, there's some ulterior motive going on there. It's usually out of some sort of, of guilt which usually comes from religion and a sense of duty, which is immoral. If you're going to give to charity and there's nothing necessarily wrong with giving to charity because it makes you feel good, you give it because it makes you feel good. It's selfish. And, it, and it's part of you loving yourself that you would help your fellow man. If anybody knows Bob and I, we're very generous people. We're very friendly people. We don't hurt people. You know, being... Uh, getting rid of altruism doesn't mean that you're going to hate people and hurt people. It means that out of your own rational self-interest and your own love for your own life, you love other people as well when they deserve it. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not familiar with the Freedom Party's views, but I presume that you are opposed to the tax break for charitable donations. We don't have a p- platform on the tax break for charitable donations because the irony is we wouldn't have an income tax to, to break it from, right? <laughs> so, so there's a there's a there's a big but, but, gap there. I mean, I always anytime I donate, I I, I ask for the the tax receipt, of course, because sure. I want every, all part of, I want all the other taxpayers to donate as well. Because because essentially is what's happening. And now when what people they're doing come to there's, me, they're allowing you to direct part of your dollars to where you would like them to go instead of where they would like to and them now to go. People from some organization that I don't really want to donate to ask me for a donation. I say, I already gave. Mm-hmm. Because I did through the tax system. You know, you they, somebody you, you, somebody you else donated. You were extorted. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing about when the government steps in and becomes the, uh, the place that people turn to for charity is that other real charities suffer. And I think that if government got out of the business of charity, I have a no problem with taking off the bottom line or as a deduction from taxation, your, your, your charitable donations, because that's where it should be, private. I, I know I'm bringing up a loaded question here, but I didn't think the conversation was actually going to go this way with religion and morality, but it speaks to the bigger issue, and that is, does art imitate life or the reverse? Because religion, my interpretation of religion has always been that religions are merely a story. There's the story of Christ. There's the story of Muhammad. You could even have the story of Captain Kirk if you wanted to get down to it, right? right? And all of these things are symbolic around which a body of beliefs uh, accrue. And it is the symbolism of all that that is of meaning to people. And I think that is why, and so part of the reason, by the way, that we use so many audio bites on our own show from dramas, from comedies, because that is the play. The play is the thing. We are in our lives acting out a play. So would you say art imitates life, or does life imitate art, or are they one and the same? Quantumly uh, both. Yeah, yeah? I, I agree with Paul. The answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
But one of the reasons that I left seminary, theological seminary, was that I realized that I was doing what Rudolf Bultmann called demythologizing the New Testament. I was demythologizing the demythologizing, the demythologizing that was going on. So when I was using words from the pulpit, I meant something very different from what most of the people in the congregation meant. And I realized that I didn't believe any of that nonsense. I, I didn't believe it, that essentially I was uh, close to an atheist, if not an atheist, and that was wrong for me. And the, the, the crowning blow came when I was supposed to give a sermon in a local church in Chicago. And the night before I gave it, I read Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis, which is about a hypocrite, a hypocrite, even evangelical. And I said, whoops, that's me. I don't believe this stuff. I know I don't believe it. And in that sense, I think you're right. It's the, there, there are these stories. And, uh, and people get wrapped up in the stories. I mean, I was about to tell the story of the, of the widow's might when you folks were talking about charitable don donations and mm. uh, and the Pharisees were making a big deal about how they donate and the widow went Yeah, atheism is what brings meaning to my life because it tells me that I have one life and then it's finished. So what could be more important than me? Yeah, this sounds very Sartre-like, existential to me, and I agree with you. In fact, one of the m most penetrating courses, challenging courses I had in seminary was called Christian Existentialism, if you can imagine that. I like Ricky Gervais's take on Christianity. Um, now, he's a renowned atheist giving talks and, and about atheism. And he said that when he was growing up, and he still holds these beliefs today, if I'm not mistaken, is that Jesus Christ to him, or Jesus, was a hero. Because the story of Jesus was he's an activist against the Pharisees and the governments and the Romans and all that, render under Caesar. And he looked at him as a hero, but a man. And so the he gospel grew up according to the, the, the Gospel of Matthew does that very well. And there's a, a movie called The Gospel According to Matthew, which points all of a sudden that Jesus was a radical. Absolutely. And that's Challenging why he was the killed, establishment. of course. Yeah. And, and atheism to me proves that um, the meaning of life is your search for it, nothing else. Whatever your search for it is, that's your meaning of life. I'm, I'm your meaning of life that. is what you say it is. <laughs> no, it's, it's my can, search for it. I can recall as an undergraduate asking one of my professors, well, what is the meaning of life? Uh, because I was going through the identity crisis and struggling with things. And he looked at me and said, there is none. <laughs> I asked my university professor, John <laughs> Lean at the time, at Memorial University, um, famous for going out with the humpback whales. And, and I said, well, and he says, the meaning of life is to optimize your long-term reproductive yield. <laughs> <laughs> and his, of course, his point of view was as a, an animal behaviorist <laughs> and as a biologist. But I think there's a little more to it than that. Yeah, I think there is too. Thank you very much, John and Paul, for joining us today. And join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be National Theatre gets a grant of seven million a year at the moment. Now, nearly half of that goes on the upkeep of the buildings. Well, that could all go into productions by all the subsidised companies all over the country. Simon Monk said last week that he didn't think they ought to have to spend their grant in that way. He said the theatre should be about plays and actors, not about bricks and mortar. But where would they put on their plays? 
There are plenty of theatres in London and all over the country. They could rent them like any other producer. Dorothy, this is brilliant. The theatre's about plays and actors, not maintaining buildings. And it would make the company genuinely national. And we could give the £3 million to put on their productions. And the government would still make a net profit of over £30 million. Oh. Nobody would be able to call me a Philistine then. Not unless they knew you. 